I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack. I'm your host, Justin Bua, artist, painter, and this is Lizzie Dastin, art historian, poet, bathrobe dresser. This is <laughs> Halloween for all of you out there who are listening after Halloween, and she's dressed as the dude, and I'm not dressed as anybody because I don't dress up for Halloween because it's my daughter's birthday, so it's just my daughter's birthday for me. Not some pagan, ritualistic, bizarre holiday. Hi, Lizzie. Hi. So today's very weird because Lizzie, a long time ago, wanted to do, wanted to talk about something on Art Attack, a subject that was me, and I didn't really want to do it for a long time, but since we've been talking about all kinds of artists, from Ron English to... John Asaro, contemporary artist, I mean. Then I said, I finally said, sure, I'll succumb to the pressure. <laughs> I'm so humble. I didn't want to, but it's I'm doing a, it. Yeah, it's difficult for you to talk about yourself. So thank you for sure. wrestling up the courage and having this moment. Yes. So <laughs> uh, now this, I'll just listen to you talk about me. Fire away. That's not how this goes. <laughs> oh, that's so Pat Benatar of you. Yes. <laughs> Fire away. Go ahead. All right. Well, we know a little bit about your beginnings in art school because mm. you've shared that with us on this show. I'm 35 years old. No, sorry. What? <laughs> I'm going to get all the information wrong out there for everybody. So what I want to do today, I want you to talk about your work in a way that you haven't before because you've been interviewed tons of times. I'm sure you have those stock questions that you receive and the stock ish answers that you give just because of the repetition. So I want to go to the deeper stuff, maybe the controversial stuff and the real things. So let's talk about that. So explain maybe your genesis of art making and introducing your family, your grandfather, your mom. So I started, uh, as a kid, I was very, I was just always into drawing. I was into painting. My, my grandfather was a graphic designer a sculptor, but he was a working letterer. So he did a lot of lettering for Felix the Cat, Prince Valiant, a lot of the cartoons. He started his own magazine before Mad Magazine called Frantic, uh, which was a pretty big magazine. Uh, and they they actually got put out of business by Mad Magazine. When Mad Magazine came into the fold, they sued my grandfather and they just had a lot more money to throw at the case. And so he was a competitor in that space. They crushed him. And he left that space. But he also had many business like crossword puzzle businesses where he used to actually do crossword puzzles. And just that typography was always around me. And my mom was a painter as well. And she would work all night long. So I would see her painting in the living room on the floor. Uh, and she did a lot of subjects that were like mother and child and, you know, always very kind of emotional, passionate, painful paintings that were pretty somber. And on top of that, I was in New York City, which I had access to. You know, I used to play tag at the Natural His History Museum. You know, I would run around the Metropolitan Museum just with my friends. Like, we would just go there and just hang out, cut school, and go to the Met. So it was a weird existence because I had access to all of that. And then I had access to what was going on around me, 
which was just all the graffiti art that was on the street. And it was at that point very, it was the beginning of this kind of whole new era in hip hop where graffiti was everywhere. So as a child, those were all the influences in my, in my visual world. So from the very beginning, your work has always hybridized lots of different things and different influences, whether it be the traditional world of oil on canvas or the typographical world or the graffiti world or the lived art museum world being a kid in New York City. And that's something that I think is true for your work today, that there is just such a complex constellation of lots of different styles and aesthetics and it's cool to know the origin of that. And I'm interested in how your biography and your circumstances when you were a little kid, you talk about being a latchkey kid, for instance, how that informed your desire to make art. Was it art as a release or how do those those things intersect? I think that I was left to my own devices a lot. So I was home alone a lot. My mom, I had no brothers and sisters. I had no father. My father had left to get a quart of milk uh, when I was two weeks old and he never returned, not because he died, but because he, he abandoned us. And so we were on 98th and Broadway in New York and my mom had to work. And so that's, that's why I was a latchkey kid is because my mom had to work and I had really no one else around. So I spent a lot of time just on my own drawing. Uh, and I think I was drawing initially, like every kid, you know, what we do is we draw, you know, dinosaurs and spaceships and, you know what I mean, figures. And I was also drawing a lot of other things. I wasn't a very typical kid artist where I'm doing comic books. I didn't really read comic books. I didn't really like comic books. Sorry that everybody's going to be depressed because most kids grow up drawing comic books and they like to think that. I actually liked heavy metal. That was the one comic book I liked. But... Uh, I wound up drawing just a lot of figures and you know guys with guns and cityscapes. Like even as a little kid, I could see these cityscapes and these guys with guns and very creative, weird stuff, which I think I still do. And I think my environment really was, and I watched a lot of TV. I watched it an extraordinary amount of cartoons and television. And so I think I was always kind of tuning out of TV and kind of drawing. And then when I was in class, I was drawing a lot and painting a lot. It wasn't my only hobby, but it was something that I needed to do to kind of kill the loneliness and, and perhaps the pain of whatever, was ha whatever trauma was happening around me in my family. But I didn't know that it was trauma at the time, so I found drawing as an outlet to channel my frustration, my anger, my loneliness and my, my loneliness and my angst into. And you talk about your environment shaping your aesthetic. And I think that that is really true for your mature work that you've been producing recently. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the environment of urban New York at the time when you were growing up and how this graffiti culture and the grit and the hip hop and the dance that you participated in, how that started to inform your work. Well, you know, when you talk about hip-hop, we're, we're, this, this is a culture that at that time really was beginning to be born, but it was being born in the Bronx, you know, like all the way up in the Bronx. You got Cool Herc up there, you got Flash, you got Bambada. And I was in Manhattan on the Upper West Side in a very mixed neighborhood, and you had, uh, you had a very diverse 
background. And I think that I was searching for something that was going to fill what I needed, which was male role models, because I was very, you know, I had a lot of female role models. I was always with my mom. It was me and my mom were like, you know, thick as thieves. So, and I was the only people that I were, you know, that I had as family was really my mom and my, my grandmother. I was close to her as well. And my grandfather, mostly my grandmother at that time. So I had two matriarchal figures in my life. And I think I was really in need of a male role model. And so I, I had, uh, Hip hop was a great outlet for that because it was very big, you know, it was very like you could have a big brother in the culture. So you walked into a community. You know, the first time I saw breakdancing, I didn't know what it was, but I knew I had to be a part of it. I was on, believe it or not, I was downtown, not even uptown, and I saw these kids breaking uh, and popping. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but I know I want to do that. And so I lived two blocks away from Rocksteady Park, which was a very famous location where all the B-Boys, Rocksteady Crew, Ken Swift, Buck Four, Kuriaki, Crazy Legs, they were dancing. And I I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't part of that world, but I knew that I wanted to be a part of that world. And so I would like go up there and I wound up hanging out on, uh, next to that, to the projects. And I got involved. I got, started hanging out with a guy named Ty Fly. And Ty Fly was a rock boy who had started his own crew. So he was part of Rocksteady, but he was an offshoot. So he had his own crew called the Rock Boys, and they were a bunch of kids from these projects, like Nelson, Ty Fly, all these kids. And I got down with them because I had been practicing dancing up until that point. I kind of battled my way into the crew at a, as a rites of passage. And so I was accepted in this crew. So even though I was from a lower middle class family, here I was hanging out with all these kids from the projects, Every day I would go there, you know, and that became kind of my world that I that I would uh, frequent. And a lot of these kids became, especially Ty Fly, and later on a guy named George Perez became like big brothers to me. Uh, and it was a it was a really crazy time and a really crazy world, full of all kinds of stuff. But I think that that world of hip hop and Rocksteady Park and becoming a rock boy that really changed my world because I was allowed to enter a community of men that were fostering this kind of patriarchal energy and really enjoying my skill set because I was, I was a good dancer, but I was really funny, you know? So like I was able to fit into the world with my humor and my, my dance humor too. Cause I was a, might not have been as good as some of the kids, you know, physically, technically, but then I, I was also had another side that was really funny. It's so interesting because hearing you talk about your biography, lots of similar themes come up for me, which is that you are close to the world that you're representing, but also a little bit of an outsider. And I think that's true for your role within the art world, that you've circumvented many systems and that there's always kind of an insider-outsider tension. And this is something that I've always wanted to talk to you about. Have you ever gotten criticism or commentary on the fact that you are not black and often paint African-American subjects? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, you know, the African-American culture uh, that I was a part of was very natural for me. You know, I'm not black. I always wanted to be black. You know what I mean? All my friends were black and 
and when I was touring Europe in 1984 with my crew, which was the New York Express, all my friends were black, and I would like did not want to tell anybody I was Jewish because that was that was embarrassing. I was I was definitely the only Jewish kid, and you know the Rock Boys and, and New York Express and all these. Why was that embarrassing? Just because it I just didn't you? want anyone to know I was Jewish because people would make fun of Jewish people, and it was like you know it was embarrassing, and um, and I wanted to be black. There was like you know, and I, I didn't care that no one cared that I was like this Italian Puerto Rican Jew, because I all I wanted to be was black, and so. Because my friends were black and because the culture that I grew up in was black, you know, and African-American, I just wanted, that was the world that permeated my mind. It was like a sponge and I soaked up this culture and I soaked up the people. And so I was like, of course, every person that I drew, even as a kid, if you look at my drawings, they're like African-American, you know, because they were my role models and they were also kind of cool. Like I was like, damn, I wish I had an Afro. Like, damn, I had the full lips. I had thick-ass Puerto Rican lip, juicy motherfucking lips. But, you know, like, <laughs> I didn't have that, the, a, a lot of the features that I, that I wanted. And so I think I projected what I wanted and what I admired. I don't know why. I liked the Afro. I wish I had an Afro. I wanted a stronger nose. You know, I wanted perhaps higher cheekbones. You know what I mean? I wanted to have darker skin. And, um, and so... You know, later on, it's funny because people are like, oh, shit, I always thought you were black. And I'm like, nope. And they're like, huh. Well, sure, I've had people who are like, well, I'm not going to collect your work, you know, because you're not black. It's, it's fine. They, you know, I understand that. Culturally, they want to, you know, some black people and collectors, they want to they wanna collect artists that are African-American to support the community. That's fine. I have no problem with that. You know, but at the same time, the flip side is that, sometimes there's Jewish people that don't want to collect my work because I have African-American subjects, and that's not what they want. They want the more Mark Chagall guys with, you know what I mean, yarmulkes right. and payas in their paintings. So, yeah, I've there's definitely been pushback from uh, African-American collectors and, at the same time, white collectors because I don't really fit into a world. And I'm not lampooning the world. Like the Beastie Boys... The Beastie Boys were accepted into hip-hop culture uh, for a myriad of reasons. Number one, they were legit and authentic. But number two, they had Russell Simmons and they had Run DMC, and that was the tour that they went on. So immediately they were accepted into the culture. I didn't have anybody who said, hey, I'm going to get you into the culture. But I will tell you this, that most people who are black collect my work because they know that I'm, re I'm the real deal. I'm authentic. There's, you, you know what I mean? Like... You can't say that I'm not authentic and that I, I didn't grow up in the world that I grew up in. You know what I mean? This is, the, this is the real deal, as real deal as it gets, because my life was the life that I had. So then can <laughs> we use that, your biographical authenticity, to help disentangle the difference between cultural celebration and cultural appropriation? Because I think that there are some slippages between those two things. Obviously, one is very problematic. And so how... How do you make sure that you always create the cel a celebratory image and not an appropriative one? For me, I always paint the cultural narratives that I was familiar with. My painting, 1981, you know, the breakdance painting is a celebratory moment of time where the backspin in 1981, Crazy Legs, was doing the continuous backspin, which became the windmill. And that's when breaking kind of took flight. And that was that moment. And you notice in that painting... I have people who are from all walks of life because that really represents me as well. Like there's 
some white people in the painting and there's a lot of Puerto Ricans in the painting and there's Dominicans and there's a lot of black people because that's that was really primarily the culture. But if you look at that culture too, you know, you have to say that, you know, Puerto Ricans are also the original too. Like if you look at Rocksteady, yeah, Rocksteady with legs and Ken Swift and Kuriaki and Buck Four, what do they all have in common? They're Puerto Rican. You know, Ken Swift's a Puerto Rican Italian kid and Legs is Puerto Rican. A lot of people think he's black, but he's Puerto Rican. Normski, Puerto Rican. You know, all these kids, they're Puerto Rican kids and they're the best dancers in the world. Yeah, they got it from the kids in the Bronx who were black. You know, Spy, he was black. There was there was a huge African-American uh, culture that started it, but then the Puerto Ricans kind of took it to that next level. You see the dance, all of a sudden they're like dancing and incorporating like salsa and you know cumbia into the movements. So I was around that and I celebrated that in my paintings, which was like straight legit. So, you know, it's just not an appropriation and you're never going to change the opinions of people that want, like I said, the collectors who say, you know, I want to collect African American artists and when they find out that I'm not an African-American artist, they don't want to collect me, that's fine. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't want anybody to have my work that doesn't want my work, especially based on the color of my skin. Because to me, that's not, that energetically feels off. And I think that you have to disentangle appropriation and celebration. Because I think there are artists that appropriate, for sure. Absolutely. And... I think that we should talk about... And I also think, just another note, sorry, that there are also, you know, African-American artists who are, who are painting, you know, scenes that they had no familiarity with, that they're just painting, you know, because... And they're selling well, you know, and they make a lot of money, and they're supported in the community. So there's that that as well. And there's the fallacy of being a Native informant, right? Like, I'm technically Jewish, but I don't identify with the religion, I identify much more with the spirituality, but just because I'm Jewish doesn't mean that I'm any more able to talk about Jewish themes than anybody else. But we have that misconception that just because I have a certain demographic that I have a certain knowledge set. And talking about the difference between celebration and exploitation makes me think of Picasso and his use of African objects and how that was so deformingly ethnocentric. And I think the reason why, which is something that isn't an issue with you, is that there was no attention or absorption of context. That Picasso, when he saw all of these African African masks that were on display at a natural um, history museum, that he he just looked at the aesthetic planes of the face and was enjoying an embrace of the void that was only formal. He had no interest in understanding the power that these masks were originally intended to hold and to elicit from their viewers. And so he didn't care about the original function of the objects. He only saw them as something to view and consume in almost this cannibalistic way as a formal exercise. And so that, to me, is a clear example of appropriation. And for you, context is everything. The fact that you lived in New York City at the time that all of these people were dancing and working and creating music, and so you are just translating what you see through your own body and creativity as a conduit. And so I think context for you is of paramount importance. Yeah, I I wasn't even thinking of 
race at, you know, at that time. The only thing I was feeling is perhaps being ashamed that I wasn't black, you know what I mean? And being ashamed that I was Jewish and not like, I remember my whole tour in 1984 when, uh, when I toured Europe with New York Express and all of my friends, I don't think I told anybody I was Jewish at all. I didn't say, I didn't, I didn't say that once. And I heard like anti-Semitic things along the way, but you know, I was, I was, like I said, I was not proud of, of where I came from in terms of my DNA. And I never thought about it like a black or white thing besides me hiding, (laughs) you know what I mean? But I, I thought about it more so of a dance thing or a graffiti thing or an MC thing. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to paint him, he's an MC. Or I'm going to paint him, he's a B-boy. I'm going to paint him, he's a, you know. And that's kind of the doodles that I always had. And the characters that were father figures to me were the dancers in my uh, crew, as well as uh, just my friends and, you know, a lot of the, the hustlers in my neighborhood. I had two welfare hotels on my block, which were SROs, rather, single room occupancies. And so there was a lot of drug addicts and, and murderers and kind of gangsters, all these nefarious characters that were in the hood, but they were cool. I had a good rapport with most of them, you know, so that I would, they were like, yo, what's up, Jess? I was like, hey, what's up? You know, Sly, how you doing, man? And like, this dude was a pimp, you know, or this dude over here was a drug dealer, but they were cool with me. And I had a relationship with them because as I navigated my world, I navigated all these different personalities and I was really good at navigating that world, even though I had been robbed. That's probably why I was good, because I knew how to like, you know, always watch my back and to, to know how to survive in this tumultuous time. Remember, New York City at that point was going through the early 80s with Reaganomics, and, and there were so many homeless people, so many destitute people. There was so much crime. There was so much just uh, insanity on the street that, that was it was rampant and it was there was a violent culture and there was also a you know wonderful culture in New York City at that time because I lived in a neighborhood that was not only full of those people but there was also poets and musicians and writers and you know many many years before Norman Rockwell grew up three blocks away from me which is really weird to think about, right? That Norman Rockwell, the great American painter of all these like almost mythic, romantic American scenes was three blocks away from me. But that was a different generation, a different time when there wasn't all these crazy people. And I grew up during the crack era where everybody was out of their fucking mind on crack. So I was a little kid that had to navigate drugs and crack and I myself you know got into the drug world because of my friends you know we were smoking a tremendous amount of weed when I was 12 13 years old I was getting high every day and and by the time I was late 13 early 14 I was starting to smoke PCP angel dust with my friends because that was a drug of choice uh so we would do all kinds of stuff we would smoke woolas and 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 cocaine and sprinkle the cocaine on weed and sprinkle dust on we we would get dusted we would go down you know i was i was really a, a wild kind of wolf who ran on the streets and i i would walk down from 98th street to the roxy we would hang out at the roxy all night and watch dj red alert go you know i mean red alert go berserk and and bambada and all, all of these different 
people, we would go down there and, and dance and, and hang and smoke and, you know, never drank. But it was crazy. So let's talk about some of your paintings, the actual art. And you are best known, perhaps, for your iconic DJ, which you did in 2001. But is that your favorite work? Or favorite is probably the wrong word. Is that the work that is most significant to you? It is one of my favorite works, but it's definitely the work that is the most recognizable because I was doing poster prints at that time and being distributed, and I wanted to, and my images were jazz-centric, and they were influenced by the rhythms of subway car graffiti and graffiti in general and loose painting, but they had a pathos and an emotional quality that people can really relate to. So my jazz work was pretty much what I was doing, but I didn't want to do it. And so I asked my distributor, hey, let me do something that I love to do, which was hip-hop centric. Let me do a DJ. And he was he was a religious Jewish guy. He was like, you know, why are you going to you know, do a DJ? It's, it's such a waste of time. No one's going to collect the DJ. It's ridiculous. I want jazz. I want jazz, jazz. You know, and I was like, he sounded a little, a little like Woody Allen, but more irritating. And um, he was an irritating person, actually, because uh, he was he was always looking at my work, judging my work, and then showing my work to people. Like, anytime I did a painting, he'd be like, you know, I really like the piano man. Hold on. Marcy, look at this. Look at Boo's new piece. Hold on. Hold on, Boo. Hold on. I'd be on the phone. He'd be like, you, do you like it? You don't like Okay, so Marcy doesn't like it. What? Marcy? <laughs> what the, I don't care about Marcy. Ask Marcy why. Hold on one second. Marcy, why don't you like it? It's too dark. She says it's too dark. Okay, well, what do you want me to do, Bruce? You want me to, like, re paint it lighter like that's not what i'm gonna do so anytime i got criticism it never helped me like i got all this crazy constructive non-constructive criticism that never helped me never made me better but it was just an opinion and so when he went around like uh, you know john what do you think of him doing a dj a terrible idea john doesn't like it you know i'd be like well, i don't care what john likes like well, almost- i'm gonna paint a dj so Right. Well, you're so defiant that that probably made you want to paint a DJ even more. Yeah. I was like, I was like, but, but it's going to be good. He goes, you know, why is it going to be good? What about a DJ is good? No one like who DJs There's like four DJs in the world. And I was like, dude, you don't even like understand the culture is going to be huge. It is huge. It's 2001. I mean, at this point, DJing was not like now where everybody's kid is, I want to be a DJ. (laughs) You know, but now it's like, now it's normal. It's so normalized. But then it was still subversive and irreverent and not normal. And certainly not something you could do as a, as a human being like in the world. And for, for that white world, it was like, oh, no, what do you, why would you want to paint that? So I kind of begged him. I, like, I really like got on my, like figuratively speaking, I got on my hands and knees and I was like, I really want to do this. And I swear to God, if it doesn't do well, I will give you, you know, I will suck your dick. No, I didn't say that. But I said like, I would do like, I didn't say that at all. But I said like, I said something really ridiculous. Like, I swear to God, I beg you, I will do anything. It was like really weird. And he's like, all right, just do it. You know, like do it, get it done. So I did it. I got it done. And I, uh, I got it out there in the world and it didn't sell. It really didn't sell. And I was like, shit, dude, he was right. And so what happened was a, a company in Canada which was a one of the, my distributors, which was a college company that would distribute, I think it was Imaginus, and they distributed to all the college campuses in Canada. 
they start selling them and they start selling hundreds and then thousands. And then every store in the States that said, I didn't want it. So I want that one artist, you have Boo and the DJ. And that became like the biggest thing I'd ever done because I struck a chord at a time on a, at, with a narrative that had never been done before in a style that was everything. So I put everything into that painting. I remember painting that painting, putting everything into it. So much studying, so much time, so much energy, value keys, color keys, drawings, drawings of the hand, you know, putting all of the stuff in the background. Even my rising painting is on his wall. Like, what would this DJ do? So I put so much thought and energy into it. And I can go into that painting, like what I actually did for hours. But point is, I put in my heart and soul and I gave it a real story, like the one dim light that he was scratching with. And, the you know, the two and the endless bookshelves is kind of like Alice in Wonderland bookshelf that goes on endlessly because it shows how many vinyls he has to draw from like what a DJ how many how much a DJ has to dig to actually play the music you know to get that perfect breakbeat that he loves and it also shows that you know, this is a guy doing it it was a reflection of me like this is a guy doing it because he loves to do it not because he has to do it but because he wants to do it and that was my story i wasn't a DJ but i was a painter who didn't have to do it but i loved to do it and at that time in my career, it was just really all for the love and for getting better and getting better. And so that that painting blew up to a point where now very few people have not seen that painting. Even if I gesture, like put my shoulder up and my, my right hand out like I'm scratching. Oh, yeah. But I did, they say, oh, what, what kind of art do you do? I just did, you know, this, this urban distorted realism or whatever I do, whatever. Okay, yeah, maybe I've seen it. I think I've heard of you. I don't know. And then I just kind of strike that gestural pose. And they're like, oh, shit, you did that? Oh, yeah, I know that painting. So, or if you show it to them, you're like, oh, I know that painting. Usually that conjures something. So, but because it's so recognizable, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's my favorite painting. I don't think it was my greatest achievement nor will it be, but it's the most popular painting that people recognize me from because in 2001, and by the time it was 2004, that painting, or 2008, that painting was selling like hotcakes at Target and Bed Bath & Beyond and Z Gallery and Prince Plus and Deck the Walls and Burlington Coat Factory. So it was this everywhere. And for those of you who are not familiar with Bua's work, I would definitely check out the DJ. <laughs> you're looking at me like you're so shocked. Who would anyone, not be familiar with everyone my Everyone is familiar. But just in case you're one of the three who people. <laughs> check that one out. And what I find so characteristic in that work and your general oeuvre is that it's just a synthesis of so many different things. We have the lyrical nature of the DJ's gesture, the attenuation of his hand and the form. So there's this combination of, of body movement and also this auditory activation because we know that he is playing music. There's an awareness of space and place that is particular to you that activates your own biography, but something that anybody who's interested in urban art can find a point of connection with. And so I think that this is a great celebratory work of your design that everybody can see as this beautiful way of understanding a particular significant time in the world. And he's not, if you notice also that his face, he's not African-American or he, if he is, he's definitely, right, he's racially ambiguous. He's racially ambiguous and he's definitely got Asiatic eyes, which because at that point 
I was very much listening to the Invisible Scratch Pickles and guys like Hubert, who, who's become a really great friend of mine. And I wanted to kind of give a nod to all the Filipino and, and Asian DJs that were out there. And I was like, the DJ is everybody. Like, the DJ is one cultural person, one multicultural person, one world. And I felt like that was who I was. Like, I wasn't really one race or one nationality. I didn't, you know, even though my mom's Jewish, I didn't feel like I'm Jewish. I just define myself by this. I live by this. Forget about it, you know, or whatever. You don't define yourself by anything. And so that's why your art is so universalizing. Yeah. And so if you look at the DJ, you go, oh, that dude's, you know, I've heard people go, oh, that's a black dude or like a light skinned dude or like that's a Filipino dude or that's a Italian guy. They don't know. or, Or like he's a mix. He's a mixed character. And I think that that allowed people also to say like, wow, I could, you know, I could, I could do that. I could be that in, on all rocks. They, they said, Oh, I could be a DJ or I could be a painter or whatever. When they looked at that painting, they were really, it was something that was connected to the culture of hip hop. And I think he became an archetypal character of that culture who represented everybody. And I think the best art is the art that makes us think And your art always makes me think about context and environment and cultures that I'm not a part of and cultures that I am a part of. And so it's, it's constantly challenging me to understand the world better. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on our show. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Hold on. Thank you, Bua, for having me. You're welcome. I mean, it was just crazy. Like, what an honor. I didn't even like, I can't believe you had me on. It's amazing. It's incredible. No, it was, uh, it was good. It was fun. It was real. It was real good and fun. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it could go on. Yeah, and it's over. And it's over. (laughs) It could go on and ad nauseum. Okay, guys, thanks for listening. Peace.